Welcome to Sports Beat KC, the Kansas City Stars Daily Sports Podcast. It's Wednesday, May 13th, and I'm Blair Kirkhoff. About three weeks ago, star columnist Von Hager Gorian and I had the pleasure of spending time with baseball icon George Brett. There are so many topics to cover with George, but Vahe and I spent much of the time talking about the season 40 years ago, 1980, when George pursued hitting 400 and all that came with it. That summer, Brett and the Royals captivated baseball, and the team made its first World Series appearance. We talk about that experience. George has covered much of this ground before, but there were some stories I hadn't heard. He expands on the pressure of that summer, what his and the team's thoughts were heading into the final game of the season, and his thoughts on former managers and other stories. Trust me, you will enjoy this. Of course, with the Chiefs some three months away from the Super Bowl victory, we started by talking Chiefs because that's what we do in Kansas City. So here we go with George Brett and Vahe Gregorian. Well, well, what a great run the Chiefs had. That was something, wasn't it? Oh, it it was, and I and I know you know someone like you who I mean you, you've become pretty invested in in everything Kansas City. I'm, I'm sure it was very gratifying for you to see that. It was it was great. I got to I've gotten to know Andy Reid and I know Mark Barbin pretty well. I've gotten to know Patrick Mahomes a little bit. Brett Beach has become a great friend. Uh, great friend Travis Kelsey uh, uh, met him, played golf with him a few times with Patrick and. I, I couldn't have been happier for any of all those guys. It was just, it was fantastic. Yeah. And, and, you know, you don't really realize it when you're playing what it means to the city when you go out there and you win a championship. But as a spectator, just sitting back watching, even though I was in Arizona during the um, during the um, uh, game, it's just amazing the, the effect that it does have on our city. It, it was just one of the greatest things that I've experienced uh, outside of baseball since I've lived in Kansas City. Well, it, that's, a, that's a neat jumping off point to, to take a look back at, at 1980, which was also quite a time for the city and quite a time for you. And one of the things that, that we got chatting about a little bit or I got thinking about as we decided to, to talk to each other was there were so many magical things about that season. But today it's April 22nd. And on this date, um, you went 0 for 4. I was hitting... I was hitting about 120, probably. <laughs> Believe it or not, it was 209. Um, 209. Boy, I was good. <laughs> well, knowing you, we figured, a good year. we figured you, you knew each at bat uh, that day. I think it was against Toronto. But um, but the, the reason I bring up that date, it was, in a sense, sort of the, the jumping off point. Um, because from there on out, basically, other than when you were out hurt, uh, you were – on fire for the rest of the season. Was it really? Yeah, I mean the two hundred nine was, was the uh, low. That was the low point. Uh, that was the low point two hundred nine. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know what it was with me, but I was always a pretty slow starter, and I don't know if it was growing up in Southern California and being used to playing in warm weather, and all of a sudden now you're playing games and it's twelve degrees outside and. For some reason, it always seemed like we opened not not in a warm weather city. You know, we always opened in in places like Toronto or Detroit or wherever. And it was just really, really hard. There wasn't many people in the stands, um, and it was just always very difficult for me to, to play early in the season. And um, and uh, normally around my birthday is when I would get hot around the middle of May. And for some reason that year, I must have I must have started a little bit sooner. But uh, it's always good to 
know, when you told me we want, we want to talk about the 1980 season, I said, sure. I think my exact words, the words to you were, well, yeah, why not talk about something positive? I don't want to talk about losing and stuff. <laughs> Even though we lost the World Series, it was a really good experience for me that year, I think, to go out there and have the type of year I had. Well, it's funny, I mean, because naturally that the season does end that way and you're thinking about that you, you lost the World Series, but on the other hand, you guys broke through um, something, you know, that barrier with the Yankees to get to the World Series, and it's hard to believe, you know, thinking back in hindsight now, but what a young team the Royals still were then in terms of just its existence, and that, that was pretty significant just getting there. I, I know you remember it as losing to the Phillies, but getting there really was, was very meaningful, I assume, in hindsight. Yeah, I think the thing that made it really, really enjoyable for me is you know, you look back to 1976, you're tied going into the last inning of the last game of the playoffs, and Shambles hits the home run, and the next year you lose in the last inning of the last game, and the next year you lose in the fourth game of a five-game playoff, and then finally we don't make the playoffs in 79, but then 80 sweeping them and getting into the World Series, and not to make any excuses or anything like that, but uh, I really thought once we won the World Series, it was like it was uh, once we beat the Yankees. It was like winning the World Series, and and um, I think we, if, if it's if it's possible, I think we went in there a little flat. I mean, we sat around New York for like four days or three days waiting for the Phillies and the Houston's and the, and the Houston um, Astros to finish their their uh, their playoff games. And so we're just sitting around doing nothing for like three days, and we practiced. Uh, I think a couple of days at Yankee Stadium because they didn't want to jump on a plane and fly to Kansas City and then have to turn around and fly back. And who knows, you know, what was going to happen in the game. We could have flown home and the next day had to leave. So I think they did the right thing. But it was um, it was uh, just one of those things where we sat around not knowing who we were going to play. I think a lot of us really wanted to play. At least I did. I thought I, we had a better chance against Houston. I thought we could have handled their pitching. And um, but it didn't turn out that way, and as a result, we ended up uh, what we ended up going to Philadelphia, practiced there one day, and then started to see the playoffs. But it was um, it was a great experience for us as a team because we hadn't been there before. And I thought after that we were just going to go on a magical run. Unfortunately, that never happened. Mm. Hey George, I, I remember during the 1980 season um, in, in the summer the. The July was just ridiculous for you, and so July becomes August, and and, and the quest for 400 continues. I recall it being becoming such a national story that um, uh, the, the, it was headlines every day in the newspapers. It was this was pre Sports Center, but it just seemed to be on everybody's local sportscast um, in, in the evening and. I've heard from Dean Vogelar and others over the years just how crazy things got in the clubhouse with with media attention. Yeah. What do you remember about those days? Well, I remember the day I went over was in Kansas City, and I got to hit my last at bat to bring it to 401. Uh, came up and faced a guy named Mike Barlow, and and uh, he struck me out the night before on sinkers down and away. And John Watson tells a great story about this. Uh, he was sitting in front of me that day, and. There was two outs in the ninth inning, and he was sitting, and there was runners on, two uh, two guys on, and with every pitch, every ball that uh, Mike Barlow Barlow threw John Waffen, the the roars got louder and louder and louder, and sure enough, he ends up walking him, and uh, that brought me up, and 
He struck me out on sinkers down in the way the day before. I'll never forget this. And so I said, okay, don't try to pull a sinker. If you try to pull it, you're going to hit a ground ball to second baseman, or you're going to strike out. Just try to go with the pitch. And sure enough, he went back to the bread and butter. He got me out on the day before, and, and I hit a line drive over the left fielder's head that got driven three runs and and, um, and standing on second base. And I knew I was hitting 399 going into that at bat, so I knew I was at 400 or 401, and I think they flashed 401 on the scoreboard and probably got one of the best ovations I've ever got in Kansas City. But little did I know for the next month I would still be over 400 because after that game, all the media that was at that game, and, you know, we're kind of blessed the athletes here in Kansas City because the media isn't that isn't that strong, you know. Uh, we don't have, you know, we had three local stations and we had one newspaper. It's not like we had 20 newspapers like New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or Bay Area up in Northern California, or even, even Dallas. But, um, you know, there was probably maybe 10 or 15 guys in there, the guys from Topeka were there, and, you know, maybe Lovelace or wherever, Nevada, Missouri, you know, wherever, you know, wherever they came in from. And um, so I answered these questions, and, you know, like, you guys have been in locker rooms enough, you know, a bunch of reporters will go over and talk to one guy, and, and then they'll leave and go talk to somebody else. But there are so many people around my locker that people couldn't get there, so they went and talked to other people and then came over to me. So I had to answer the same questions over and over again. Well, the next day we flew to, uh, we flew to Dallas, and um, sure enough, that's when the live eyes, you remember the live eyes where the TV stations would broadcast live from the, from the baseball stadium? Yeah, that's when that, that became yeah. real popular, around that time. So we had three or four stations down there, five stations, we had the Dallas stations, the Fort Worth stations, and everybody saying, hey, can we do a live eye today at 612? Can we do one at 618? Can we do one at 620? I said, well, that's when my group's taking batting practice. I'm not going to miss it. Well, Dean Vogelar jumped on a plane the next day, and he came down, and he had talked to a guy named Bob Fischel, who was the uh, public relations director for the uh, Yankees in 1961 when uh, Roger Maris uh, was trying to hit 61 home runs. And so he said, you know, Dean, the only thing I could tell you is I could do my job. I let the media get the best of Roger. If I was you, what I would do is I would have a press conference every day before the game and after every game. So George only has to answer the questions once. He doesn't have to answer them 20 times to 20 different reporters. So every day, about 4 o'clock, at home or on the road, I'd have to go into a room, and I would talk to the reporters for, you know, maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then after the game, they would whisk me off to another room, and and I would talk to the reporters. It did make my life a lot easier, but it kind of got me out of my routine, being with my teammates. And, and I remember one night I came back in the locker room and everybody was showered. And I asked my brother Ken, who was on the team, and Jamie Cork, I said, well, where are we going tonight? They said, well, I don't know where you're going. We never see you anymore. I'm hitting them all over the field. I'm hard to defense. As a result, 
And as a result, I'm just getting hits. Well, I don't know how long this is going to last. Well, after talking about it and talking about it for a month, all of a sudden it became very important for me to do it. And then I went out and did the one thing that I should not have tried to do, just go out and try to hit 400. Where before I was just trying to put the ball in play and take, you know, get my hits whenever they came. And if I didn't get a hit, it was still a big deal. As long as we won the game, uh, that was the most important thing, you know, was winning the ball game. But after talking about this thing for a month and we had a 20-game lead, winning games wasn't important to me anymore. It was getting hits. And, 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 and I think that's what threw me off my game a little bit. It was the first time in my career that my performance meant more than the outcome of the game. And that's when I started to press a little bit. And as a result, you know, the average pummeled down to about 384 <laughs> when I was doing it, you know, just thinking of myself and my performance. And then uh, as soon as all the media left me and went home, all of a sudden I said, well, let's just go out and win some games. And I ended up at 500 the last five games. I ended up at 390. So, you know, I learned a valuable lesson. I was 27 years old. I thought I might have another chance to add it. That one year I thought I had a chance. I think I was hitting 365 at the All-Star break, but never got that hot streak in the second half to get it up to 400. You know, in a way, you've said this in as many words, but how do you reflect on that chase now, George? I mean, it, it really was, it was incredible. I mean, I was in Philadelphia at the time. Blair was probably in North Carolina, but, you know, we were certainly sports fans following it from afar because it was such a, an amazing story. In, in I, don't, I don't know if I don't know if they would have taken the same approach 
Yeah. If I was over 400 or under 400, you know, if I was at 390, if I was at 398, I'm sure they would have let me play. Yeah. But, you know, just, just to go out and try to get five hits, which is a rarity in the game of baseball back then as, as it is today. It doesn't happen very often, but like I said, I did it before and I've done, I did it afterwards. Who knows? I, I felt very confident. I felt very good about it, uh, about going out there and just as soon as I make it out, get me out of the, out of the game. And uh, they just didn't uh, didn't agree with that. And, and when and when they told me the logic, what happens if I get hurt? I agreed with their logic. So it was kind of a dual decision. It, it's funny, yeah. I mean, there's no way to know how that would have gone. But it is. I'm just looking at the numbers right here. Uh, you would, yeah. If you'd gone five for five, you would have been 180 for 520, and there you are, right on the right on the button. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I, I was told five hits, and he looked back over the course of the year. That's less than one hit a month. A, a line drive here. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I remember that year. I was over, I was over 400. We went to Seattle. I went one for 11. My only hit was off a left-hander. I forget his name. I went one for 11. I didn't strike out one time. Mario Mendoza was their shortstop. He robbed me of three hits up the middle. And they had a little uh, center fielder named Johnny Moses, I believe. And he dove in left center, once in left center and once in right center, made these headlong diving catches. We have a 21-game lead, and they're playing it like it's the seventh game of the World Series, and they're probably 40 games out of first place. But I went one for 11 in that series, and the average went from like 400, 401 to 392. And I think I hit the ball hard like seven or eight times out of the 11 at-bats. But my only hit was a home run. Well, you know, the other thing... I hit the ball hard. I mean, I hit the ball hard, and I hit the left center, right center, up the middle. I was hitting it, you know, where... Where I, you know, not always hit it because I kind of used the whole field, but uh, they made some plays on my ass, which really came back to hurt me. I'm just thinking too about the injuries you had. I can't. I'm embarrassed. I can't remember um, what if they were well, the, the same injuries. Was, I was killing second base in Cleveland, yeah. and uh, the catcher threw a high throw, and Jerry Dubinsky was the shortstop, and I saw him just I was, as I was saying that, and I didn't get that big jump, but it was earlier in the year. Uh, this might have been in, in July uh, or uh, April, May, June. It might, might have been in June. Um, and uh, I didn't get that good a jump, but I saw him waiting for the ball, and I said, God, i got to take one more step to, so, I, uh, so I could beat the throw. And I ended up tearing the ligaments in my right ankle. I, I slid about a foot from the bag and rolled over, and they carried me off the field in a stretcher, and they sent me home the next day, and I missed, like, a month or five weeks of the season back in June. I think it was beginning of June or end of June, beginning of July. And at that time, I don't know what I was hitting, but uh, normally, you know, back then, back then, they, you didn't have these rehab skits where they send you down to the minor leagues so you can get your timing back. You come off the DL and you play the next day, and sure enough, I came off the DL. I was able to take batting practice for a few days and, and felt pretty good, ran the bases, and all of a sudden they activated me, put me back in the lineup, and I. It normally takes you, you know, four or five games to get your timing back, but I was so locked in that year that uh, as soon as I got back in the lineup, I, I, it was like I'd never missed a game. It looks to me like you had 21 hits in the next 10 games, something like that, something like that which is pretty pretty amazing. Uh, two, four, well, for fives? Yeah, well, yeah. Just, just think if they had rehab, I could have hit 400 and triple A back there. Hey, it's Blair. 
we have a special subscription offer for Sportsbeat KC listeners, unlimited digital access to the Kansas City Star's award-winning sports coverage. Sign up now for one year of Sports Pass for access to all the sports news, features, and columns presented on the KansasCity.com site, and it's only $30. That's a 40% savings off our regular rate. Your subscription will automatically renew after the initial term at $50 unless you tell us to cancel. Your subscription helps support the sports coverage of KansasCity.com and the Kansas City Star, and that support has never been more important. Please visit KansasCity.com slash offer to get this special offer. And as always, thanks for listening. You mentioned this earlier, and I just it just was something that had been on my mind a little bit too. I, you know, Jim Fry wasn't with you guys very long, and and it, as you know, of course, he he died the other day. And yeah, I just wonder your your reflections on him and and um, what 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 role he did or didn't have in in how things played out. Uh, well, he was obviously if you're going to hit three ninety. Three ninety, and you go to the World Series, and you sweep the Yankees in the playoffs. You know he did a great job, yeah. <laughs> did a fantastic job. He was he was a guy that I got to know. It's funny, a lot of these guys that became our, our managers, like Whitey Herzog. I knew Whitey when he was a third base coach. Dick Hauser, I knew White. I knew Dick when he was a third base coach. Jim Fry, I knew Jim when he was a third base coach because I played third base. So you're always talking to him between innings and before the game and stuff. And, and uh, so I knew Jim pretty well, uh, probably more than anybody else on the ball club when he was named manager. And uh, so he and I already had a relationship. And um, and I had that type of year. I mean, he was the easiest guy in the world to play for. I mean, he was he was pretty simple. Um, I always say Whitey was one of the hardest guys to play for because he demanded a lot of things. Dick Hauser was pretty easy. John Lofton, an ex-teammate, was real easy. Hal McCray, ex-teammate, was real easy. Uh, but Jim Fry was about as easy as it could get because, I mean, why? How could it be difficult to play for him when you got a 21-game lead in, in <laughs> September and, and you're hitting 390? You know? <laughs> Pretty easy guy. I mean, he was easy to get along with and probably got along really well with a lot of people in 1980. In 1981, probably was a little bit tougher because he ended up getting fired. You know, because uh, because our performance was a little lackluster after going to the World Series. It was interesting to see, uh, just in reflecting on that, too, that, I mean, there wasn't much cushion for him, um, it, it seemed, for after the year before. Well, I think it was 10 and 20. Were we 10 and 20 or something? Yeah. And he got fired because I, I, I remember reading the article in the paper about him when he passed away. And he and I have uh, some good mutual friends uh, that he plays golf a lot with or he played golf with a lot. Uh, one of them is a Kansas City guy, Jack Frizee. And um, Jack and him are good friends. And I've actually played in a golf tournament in the Bahamas. And uh, I'm on uh, Pat Brooks's team here in Kansas City. And Jack was, or, uh, Jim was always on Jack's team. So you know, it was always fun to see him coach. And in fact, that's what uh, Jack calls him to, to this day. And in fact, I got a call from Jack the day that he died uh, before the media found out about it. He just said, I'm just giving you a heads up. Your old, your old skipper died, Jim Try. And he had some sal- 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 saliva cancer or something or whatever those glands are that cancer is 88 years old and uh, and uh, died down in Florida but uh, he was good he was uh, he was a fun guy to be around always you know he told a lot of jokes and always had a smile on his face which you know your first year managing you, you win your division by 22 games I'd have a smile on my face too <laughs> hey no matter no matter 
how this season um, unfolds, it's going to be different than any baseball season that we've probably ever seen. And and it, it just occurs to me that when you mentioned the 1981 season, that was really unique as well. And um, I, I'm just wondering how you think teams will manage – Let's, I, I don't know, um, a 100-game, and 80-game season. It was certainly different in 1981, but it was, it was odd, and it was out of the routine, and that's what we're looking at for baseball this year. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm hoping they can get half a season in, and if they have to go to Florida and play maybe you know, a month down there and then open up the big stadiums in their, in their cities, if this uh, coronavirus gets... Um, it's under control a little bit, you know, every day, uh, there's news on it. Um, I know, I don't know anybody that's, that's had it. Um, I don't know anybody. I know one guy that's been tested, but, uh, I know a lot of people that are really taking all the, all the safe routes, uh, quarantining themselves. I've been to the grocery store twice. When I go, I wear a mask, I wear gloves. I'll, I'll be going to the grocery store today. Um, <laughs> Um, to get some chicken because I'm going to grill some chicken tonight. But, um, you know, ho- hopefully they can get this thing figured out. I mean, I think not only it would be good for baseball, but I think it would be good for our country uh, to get baseball back on the back on the, on TV. And, and um, it just kind of be like, okay, look, we're, we're making progress. Well, let's, let, let's play some baseball. You know, some people have to be quarantined in Arizona. I don't know how that would work. Uh, playing in front of empty stands, I don't know how that would work. I know I wouldn't like it, but if it was the only way I could play the game that I love to play and you get paid and that's your livelihood, I mean, that you make the most of it. And uh, just hopefully that we'll be able to get this thing under control and and um, and start the season, hopefully by the All-Star break, get at least a half season in. George, I, I didn't really get to talk to you down there, but I... I Got to say hi to you one day uh, down in Surprise as, as you were we were in passing, and I, I wonder if you had enough time down there to get any sort of impressions of of Mike Matheny as 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 the manager and and even of the the change with uh, John Sherman taking over as owner. I know you've known John before, but I'm just curious about any in particular impressions you've taken in, in this brief time. Um, well, I, I met Mike. His first year in spring training was not this year, last year, when he got let go by the Cardinals. Much like the Royals did with Ned Yost, they yeah. hired him as a senior advisor to Dayton, realizing that hey, if we have to make a managerial managerial change, this is the guy we want, and so let's get him on board now, so he can get to know the organization a little bit. Uh, we can get to know him a little bit, and um, so I met Mike then. Um, he would suit up and, and um, you know, he, he, he'd get there and he'd be in his workout clothes and then we'd go out and have practice. He would be in his street clothes and I'd say, why don't you put on your uniform or something? He says, no, 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 I'm, I'm not a coach. I'm just here working out. And it was much like Nick Yost, much like Dale Swain this year, Mike Church. You know, they didn't put on uniforms and they've always had uniforms on. And uh, he just got to know the organization a little bit. But I was really impressed with him. He'd have meetings every day, little inspirational meetings. He brought in guest speakers. Uh, he was very organized. The guys really took to him. Uh, they worked out hard. Uh, they were quick workouts, but they were there was no wasting time. Uh, everybody seemed to get their work in in a, in, a, in a professional manner. I think everybody was very pleased with him. Uh, the players all liked him. Uh, he has one-on-one meetings with them. I did a conference call or a Zoom call the other day with 
all our scouts, all our amateur scouts. And I guess uh, they've been doing that a lot. They've been having guest speakers. They had Urban Myers. They had Tom Crean, uh, a football coach and a, and a, and a uh, basketball coach, just talking about you know their games and how they go about their thing and what they're doing during the lockout or the uh, quarantine. And um, and uh, it's pretty interesting. And uh, I listened to I got on one with Mike McDee the other day, and he was just talking about you know a lot of things, a lot of things. And uh, then I found out the next day that the Royals uh, they they set out something to the Royals. I guess they've been talking to groups of players on Zoom, like uh, Terry Bradshaw will get some of the hitters together and they'll just talk. Okay, here's what we should be working on now. Make sure you do this when you're hitting them. The same with uh, with the pitching coach and the same with everybody. All the coaches are probably doing these Zoom calls. And um, and uh, the Royals had a trivial game, you know, a trivia game on a Zoom call. They had 48 players from spring training on a playing bit uh, trivia. <laughs> now that's that's pretty good team chemistry right there. When you can do that, you get 48 guys to sign up for trivia night on Zoom call. <laughs> so I think he's brought the team together a little bit. Uh, the way he treated the young kids, the Khalil Lees, the Nikki Heaths, guys like that. I mean, they they really enjoyed spring training. They felt part of the team. And I think that's all um, that's all Mike Matheny's doing because he made the locker room everybody's locker room and made everybody feel like they were part of the ball club. I, I, I love the idea of that trivia game. That's uh, um, yeah. it's, I, I wasn't invited to play. I probably like to gun up against some of those guys. <laughs> and, and and George, you've, you've probably known John Sherman for a little while, just around Kansas City. No, I, well, actually, actually, I went to his house one night for a, a fundraiser, and I didn't realize it was his house when he bought the ball club. I got a call from. Uh, uh, Emily, Hayden's secretary, and said, John Sherman would love to have lunch with you one day. I went to his office. We sat there. We were supposed to sit there for an hour. We sat there for two hours just talking, getting to know one another. And um, and then I ended up leaving. And then uh, I saw him in spring training. Uh, a very nice man. The one thing that I really like about what he did, the type of group he put together, is that everybody that invested along with him, into this ball club, has Kansas City ties. They either grew up here, went away to college, became successful in other cities, or they grew up someplace else, now live in Kansas City, and uh, make Kansas City the residence. But uh, we have all Kansas City people uh, that are part owners of this ball club, and I think that's really, really important. Uh, Obviously, Ewing Kaufman was a great Kansas City and David Glass, um, uh, uh, Northwest, uh, down from Northwest Arkansas. He bought a home in Kansas City, but I don't think David really ever became, you know, that attached to the city where I think all the owners that we have now are attached to the city and will do everything and anything they possibly could do to make this season, to make this franchise a success again. George, when was that fundraiser with, with when you went to Johnson? I don't even know when it was. I have no idea. But my wife remembered. <laughs> I didn't remember him. <laughs> it, it, I, I know who he is now, though. He's our <laughs> boss. He's our boss. <laughs> and he's got a pretty good sense of humor. He's got a pretty good sense of humor. I'm sure he's not very happy right now. His first year owning it. I ran into one of the investors the other day. He's a member of my country club. And I saw him and I said, Tom, how you doing? How do you like being a part of a baseball ownership 
Bad year to be an owner. His first year, he's looking forward to the season. And I remember down, all the owners were down there when they canceled spring training, and they had a little tent right there by the locker room. And we had Freddie Potek and John Mayberry and Dennis Leonard and Amos Elders were in town as guest instructors. And all of a sudden, they come over and they say, hey, would you guys mind going over there? These owners uh, just found out that spring training was canceled, and we need to cheer them up a little bit. So we all went over there and kind of walked around with him and talked to him for a long time. But uh, it's a good group he's put together, and I know a bunch of them, and I'm sure I'll get to know a bunch of them a little bit more. George, you've been very generous with your time. Just one last thought, um, unless you want to add something else about 1980, but one last thought I have. You mentioned this about the ownership group all being related to Kansas City, and I, I find myself thinking back to 1980 and wondering if you had any idea then that you would – you would become a basically a lifelong Kansas Cityan now. Uh, well, I, I didn't know back then. I, I knew in 1984 when I signed my last contract with the Royals, uh, Everett Fogelman was part owner of the ball club back then. He wanted me to sign an extension. I already had about three years left on my contract, and and um, and so uh, he, he and I started negotiating and. Next thing you know, Mr. Kaufman got involved. And, uh, one of the things Mr. Kaufman said was, this is way too much money for us to come back. And so me and Mr. Kaufman didn't see eye to eye for a while. But me and Mr. Fogelman did. <laughs> and uh, so we signed a contract and it basically said, if you finish your career with the Kansas City Royals, uh, well, that was the lifetime contract I signed. Uh, you'll be vice president for life. And so um, uh, Everett, Everett had some... Um, some ideas that we were going to do, and um, and unfortunately, he had to sell the team. And uh, I'm just glad that Mr. Glass has honored that. I'm glad that uh, Mr. Sherman has honored that. And uh, I will be. Uh, you know, one thing I take a lot of pride in is uh, loyalty, and and I think the one thing. Well, I, I know there's only two people that have worked in this organization longer than I have. Denny Matthews, the announcer, who started the first game, uh, uh, the first official game with Buddy Blattner back in 1969, and Art Stewart. Art still employed by the organization, and I think he was signed in 1969 also as a scout in the system. And then I signed out of high school in 1971. So, um, you know, I, I, I love to tell people I'm from Kansas City. I, still, I think I'm still the biggest Kansas City Royal baseball fan in the world. And, um, and uh, you know, Kansas City's where I'm always going to live. Uh, granted, I have a home in Arizona, which I spend a little bit of the winter there and then all of spring training. And probably going to go back there when spring training starts again. And the season, if it starts in, in Arizona, I'll probably move back there for two or three weeks or whatever Dayton wants me to do. But uh, Kansas City will always be my home. I'm, I'm never going to move from here. Well, George, uh, we're grateful that you're here and grateful you spent all this time with us and, and just can't thank you enough and um, appreciate you uh, letting us reflect with you on 1980 and what you're going through now. Yeah, it was a, it was a fun year. We need more years like that. <laughs> okay. But Thanks, 2014, George. 2015 weren't bad either. <laughs> no, they were not. That 85 wasn't bad. <laughs> That will do it for today. Thanks to our production staff of Derek Donovan, Savannah Smith, Randy Mason, Beth Welsh, Jeff Rosen, and Chris Fickett. A tip of the cap to George Brett, who was so generous with his time, and, of course, to my buddy Vahe Gregorian. 
Links to the stories we discussed, including Vahe's column, which posted on Wednesday on KansasCity.com, can be found in the show notes. Hey, earlier in the episode, you heard me talk about the Sports Pass offer, and it's still good. 30 bucks for a year's worth of sports coverage. Come on, that's, that's a terrific deal. But here's an even better offer. Buy the entire Kansas City Star product. Sports, news, features, commentary, and analysis, the whole bit. You get all the stories written by my talented colleagues, and the details can be found at account.kansascity.com slash subscribe. That's account.kansascity.com slash subscribe. Here's something else to consider. Maybe you already subscribe and you want to help more. You can help us there also. For the past two months, no one's covered or told the story of the Kansas City area during the COVID pandemic like the Kansas City Star. And there is a place to simply make a tax-deductible contribution to the Star that will help us continue to report on the coronavirus and how it's impacting our communities. To donate, go to givebutter.com slash Kansas City Star. That's givebutter.com slash Kansas City Star. All the help is greatly appreciated, and whether it's the sports pass, the full subscription, or donation, you're helping us with our news coverage and helping deliver products like Sports BKC. And we'll be back on Thursday with another episode. Thanks for listening.